Can you remember the excitement that you had when you first became a believer in Jesus Christ? As a brand new believer, how exciting was it to open the Bible and to think about what it was you were about to learn from God and his word? But as time has passed, has some of that excitement passed for you? Or maybe coming to church or spending time in God's word seems more like a duty than a devotion to you. If that's where you find yourself today, then as we turn in our Bible to Nehemiah chapter 8, what I hope will happen today is that you'll get excited again about the privilege that we have to see and study God's word as we look at the privilege it was for the people in Nehemiah's day. In Nehemiah chapter 8 and verses 1 through 2, it tells us, And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Now, last week we saw that the job of reconstructing the walls was complete. And now we turn to Nehemiah re-instructing the people within the walls on how they're to live and worship. And as this transition takes place, what we see is what kind of a great leader Nehemiah was. We've seen that throughout the book. But once again, we see today some of the things that a great leader does. As Nehemiah says, there's somebody more qualified than me to do this part of the job. There's somebody better equipped to teach the people God's word. Nehemiah is not one of those monument type of leaders who say, I birthed this company. I built this organization, so I'm in charge. Nehemiah was a good and godly man. He was certainly capable of teaching God's word, but he knew there was somebody even better than him. We just read how it was Ezra who was a priest and a scribe. As you read the book of Ezra, it says of of this man in Ezra 7.10, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and his ordinances in Israel. Ezra was a man who had devoted his entire life to learning God's word and to teaching God's word. Ezra was a leader himself. You'll recall that he was the guy who led the first group of exiles back uh, from captivity to Jerusalem where the temple was rebuilt. Ezra's been there for 12 years longer than Nehemiah, laying the foundation spiritually for this moment of revival that's about to take place. And as Ezra takes the center stage, I want you to notice that Nehemiah willingly disappears off the stage. Because as you look at verse 4, you'll see there are 14 names that are mentioned there, and Nehemiah's is not among them. Nehemiah was not one of the guys who was up on the platform. He was the type of leader who was willing to step aside, much like John the Baptist. As you read about John the Baptist, as he had his ministry out preaching and calling the people to repentance, and the crowds were following John. But then there came a point where Jesus was raised up and revealed, and as Jesus was coming onto the scene, the people who had been following John started to follow Jesus. And some of John's disciples were upset about this, and they went to him and and tried to get John to to stop it. And, And John made the statement that he must increase, but I must decrease. As you think about your own life, are you that type of a man or a woman? Are you the type of person that it doesn't matter to you who gets the credit as long as the work gets done, especially when it comes to God and his work? As we look at Nehemiah, he's willing to step aside. Uh, he, 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 he doesn't even get up onto the platform, but he lets Ezra and the others who are teaching the law 
uh, be up there. Now, as we see in verse 2, we're told that this is taking place on the first day of the seventh month. And what this tells us is it was Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is the Hebrew words that mean the head or the top of the year. Literally, it's, it's January 1st on our calendars in the Jewish calendar. This is New Year's Day. And as we know, many of us will make uh, New Year's resolutions, right? Now, I'm not asking if you keep them beyond the first week, but uh, it's a time where many are saying, I, I know this is a new year, a new start, an opportunity to make changes. And as this is taking place, the people in Jerusalem are saying, we have an opportunity to make the needed changes. Now, Rosh Hashanah is also called the Feast of Trumpets in the Jewish uh, calendar, and that's because in Leviticus 23:24 it tells us that there are trumpets to be blown. And these aren't the little noisemakers that we use on New Year's, those little throwaway cardboard things with the you know thing that pops out. These are a shofar. It's a ram's horn. It's a, 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 a trumpet that will make a long, mournful sound because it's calling people to a time of repentance. This, this time of repentance and remembrance uh, ends 10 days later on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the Jewish day that means the Day of Atonement. And what the Jewish uh, system believes is that the book of life is opened at Rosh Hashanah, and you have 10 days to tip the scales in your favor. You need to offset the bad things you've done uh, with, with good deeds. And so people will spend this 10-day period really focused on trying to live right, do good things, and attend a synagogue. Uh, it's kind of like Christians who show up on Christmas and Easter. We call them CEOs, right? Christmas, Christian, uh, Christmas and Easter only is in the, in the church tradition. Well, on Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, these type of things, the synagogues are overflowing with secular Jews who maybe don't attend uh, services any other time of the year because, again, they're hoping to get enough good good deeds, points in the book of life uh, that they can get to, to God. And yet what the Bible tells us is we don't get to God by doing good things. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. The Bible is clear in the Old Testament that salvation would come through the promised Messiah. Read Isaiah chapter 53. The prophet Isaiah pointed to the promised one who would come, the Messiah who would go to a cross and die to pay the penalty of death for sins. It says, by his stripes we are healed. And so the Jews needed to know the Messiah. The Jews needed to turn to Jesus back in Nehemiah's day and in our day, just as we as Gentiles do. The law is not designed to save us. What Galatians 3.24 tells us is the law has become our tutor, to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. Now, there were many people in Nehemiah's day who did not even know what the law said, much less who it pointed to, which is why we see uh, Ezra here teaching the people in verses 3 through 6. It says, and he read from it before uh, the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women who could understand and all the people who were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for this purpose, and beside him, and then you see the 13 other names listed. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and he opened it, and all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. 
while lifting up their hands, and they bowed low, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, as, as Ezra is teaching, it says he's on a wooden platform. I'm standing up on a raised platform here, but the Hebrew word used literally means a tower. He's on a, a very high wooden platform. There were tens of thousands of people gathered in this area in order to hear the word. And we're told that he's by the water gate. There was a flat stone wall as well as a body of uh, a reservoir of water there to serve the city and the temple. And this served as a natural amplifying area so people could see and hear uh, Ezra as he's reading. In addition to the the men up on the platform in verse 4, you see in verse 7 there are another 13 men who are mentioned and we're told that they're Levites. In Deuteronomy 33.10 and Malachi 2.7, we're told that one of the jobs of the Levites is to teach the word of God, to teach the people. You'll remember Levites served in the temple alongside the priests in various functions and and here the teaching of the law is one of the, the functions that they would do. Now, we read that when Ezra opened the book of the law, or more accurately, as he unrolls the scroll, it says the people stood up. Some of you have been in churches where when the word of God is read, everybody stands as a sign of respect. And one of the reasons we don't do that here at Wayside is we interweave the the reading of the scripture all throughout the message. And so that means y'all would be popping up and down every time I said verse this, verse that. And so what's important here is not the posture of the people where they were standing, but it's more that they were engaged in the the message that was being given. We see that as we're told the people bow and worship. They raise their hands. They respond with amen. It says they are attentive to the book of the law. It says in verse 3, all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And as the service is going on, it says that it went from early morning until midday. What this means is it would have been about six hours. Some of you uh, start tapping your watches right as it gets to be, you know, does does pastor know that time is up, that it's time for us to leave? Well, they went for six hours. It went from early morning until uh, as as they stood, they're, they're there in the sun. And it says they listened attentively the whole time as the scriptures were read and explained. I've had the privilege of being around the world teaching God's word, sometimes in seminaries, other times in churches, sometimes at conferences. And and everywhere that I've gone in the world, I've seen what we're reading about today, where people are so hungry to hear God's word. I've been in Kazakhstan, Ukraine, Romania, Russia, China, uh, Africa. And in these, these countries that I've been in, oftentimes I'm scheduled to teach maybe six or eight hours a day in a seminary and I'll end up teaching about 12 hours a day because what will happen is the students, it'll come time for a break and they'll say, uh, can we keep going? We don't want to take a break. When mealtime comes, they'll, they'll crowd in around you and they'll continue to ask questions all through the meal. When the day is over, they'll, they'll say, could we continue uh, with questions and they'll come and knock on the door where you're staying in a room and they'll invite you, you know, they'll say, Yahachuche, would you like some tea? And the first time I ever said no, these three students had this great look of disappointment and I felt bad and I said, okay, uh, I, I'll go with you. And I went into the, the cafeteria and I found there were 50 other people gathered waiting. <laughs> and so I found out you never say no uh, to an invitation to come and drink tea because it's a, a continuing of the instruction, and they'll go d- late into the night. The translators finally say, look, I, 
my voice is gone, I can't talk anymore, and that's when you find the students who speak English because they'll step up and they'll keep going and you'll keep going until you say, Yahachu spot, I need to sleep, you know, and they'll say, okay, tomorrow. And so you go, you go to bed and then the day starts over. And uh, this is something that happens in the churches as well. Uh, I, I jokingly said some of you tap your watches at, at the hour and 15 minute mark here, but if you go to churches in these other countries, they will have three to five pastors who give a sermon in a service. The first sermon ends, the next one starts, and then the next and the next. And people stay and they listen attentively. Many of them have traveled long distances to get there and they're just so hungry to hear the word taught. Several of these countries I mentioned are former communist countries where it was illegal uh, to have a Bible, to hear the Bible taught. And so people are hungry to hear the message. I wonder how happy we would be here in San Antonio to sit for six hours and listen to God's word if we didn't have this. If we didn't personally own Bibles, most of us have not just a Bible, but multiple Bibles at home. We have apps on our our phones and things that have the Bible at our fingertips. We can go on the internet. We can turn on the radio. We can turn on the TV. We have access to God's word being taught. But there are places all around the world where that's not true. And people are hungry to hear the word. As Ezra is reading the word here in Nehemiah, remember they've spent generations in captivity. They've come back into the land. The temple had been rebuilt 12 years earlier with Ezra in the first return, but the people have not yet really learned the word. For many of them, it's, it's new things that they're hearing. And if, if that were the case with you, would you be willing, as the people were here, just to, to stand in the sun for six hours to hear the word taught? If you're somebody who's here this morning and you don't personally own a copy of the scriptures, you don't have a Bible, uh, please go by our Welcome Center. Do not leave today without stopping by. We will give you a Bible as a gift to you because we think it's that important for you to have the Word of God personally. I've seen people uh, who have never had a Bible, and when you say to them, would you like a Bible, how they respond, where they will weep. And they will excitedly take what you offer to them. I mentioned being in Russia. The first time I was ever in Russia was in 1993. And it was right as the country had just opened up. And uh, the, the trip I was there was actually not an official missions trip. I actually went with the Dallas Police Department. I've told you before that I was a policeman in Dallas when I was going through seminary. And I had met several Russian students there at the seminary who were amazed to see me show up in class some days in my police uniform. Uh, one of them actually confronted me because he thought I was there to intimidate uh, the students, and he told me this couldn't happen because it was America. And I said, look, I'm a student here. He said, this is impossible. And when I showed him my ID card, uh, then I found out why. He said, there are no policemen in Russia who are Christians. And I thought, there's no way that's the case. So in 1993, the Russian government contacted the Dallas uh, city of Dallas government and said, we'd like to do a cultural exchange. Will you send over some police officers and we will in a year later send Russian officers to Dallas. And when this trip was advertised uh, on the bulletin board at the station, I contacted the chief of police and I said, I want to go on this trip. And he said, that's great. We'll put you down on the list. And um, then when it came time to send the manifest over, what they did was send 
your job to the Russian police. I was a patrol sergeant at the time, so I should have been placed with the patrol officers in Russia, but I had asked to be designated as the chaplain because I was a seminary student and I was a chaplain for the Dallas police at the time as well as an officer. And so Russia gets this list, and it says Shashinka, which is a tr- means police priest. And they go, Stoy, what, what is this? You know, what is a police priest? And in their wisdom, they decided I was the KGB handler for the trip. And so uh, they put me with the KGB officers over there in Russia, which was wonderful uh, because... <laughs> Now, I had mentioned these Russian students, and so when I said I was going over there to, we went to Moscow as well as to Oktau, Kazakhstan, and they said, you know, you're going to be around people, your translators will not translate what you're saying. So I wrote a tract, uh, I titled it, Every Criminal Stands Before the Judge to be Sentenced, What Happens to the Policeman When He Stands Before the Judge? And I used police illustrations they would understand in there, and then... um, One of the students was Dr. Peter Mitskevich. He had been president of the Gideons, and so he arranged for me to get 400 Russian New Testaments delivered uh, to the Olympic Village where we were staying in Moscow. And so I get there, and I have this backpack, and I put these tracts that I had written, and the Russian students had translated for me, and I put all this in this backpack. And I'm carrying this backpack with 400 Bibles into uh, prisons, Russian police stations, various things, and and I'm with my KGB handlers, and uh, I would, you'd present your card, they'd look at it, they'd see that you were a Shashinka, and they'd all have the same question, what is this? And uh, I would respond, would you like a Bible? And they would immediately look around to see if anybody else was around, and if not, they'd go, da, da, I want one, and you'd give them the Bible. And I had officer after officer just break down into tears, They had never held a Bible in their life. They had never had a Christian talk to them. They would tell me, Roger, the the Christians hate us. And I understand the fear. The the Christians were afraid to let the police into their churches even after things opened up because they thought if this turns back to the way it was, then there's going to be persecution. And I saw numerous Russian police. I saw numerous Muslim Kazakhs, uh, including a KGB colonel, come to the Lord. Uh, through this trip. Again, I ask you, do you take for granted having a Bible in your hand? It's not just having a Bible. I wonder how many of you have ever worn out a Bible? Now, I'm not talking about abusing it where the pages get torn or you throw it or use it as a doorstop or something, but how many of you have ever worn out a Bible because you've spent so much time going through it that it's falling apart? The Word of God is precious. The Word of God is, is something that it's easy for us to take for granted. I want you to remember until a few centuries ago, very few people even had access to the Scriptures. The Bible was not something that people could have because not only could they not afford it, it was very expensive to have anything written, but they couldn't even understand it. The Bibles that did exist were chained to pulpits in churches so they wouldn't be stolen. And if you went up there and peeked into it, you wouldn't have been able to read it because it was in the scholarly languages of the day. In 1382, John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English so that the masses could be able to begin to understand the word of God for themselves. And he was was condemned as a heretic for what he did. There's a mission organization today named Wycliffe Bible Translators. It's named after him. 
whose mission is to do what John Wycliffe did, where they take and they translate the word of God into the language of the people so that they can understand it for themselves. I love to hear the stories of translators in the field and the impact that happens when people are able to finally see the word of God in their own language or to understand the story. Uh, One of my favorites is a guy who was in a back tribal area of Africa and he was translating the word of God to this indigenous group and the the people uh, to test the language whether it was understandable he would meet with the tribal elders and the the top leaders in this tribal region and they would sit every day as he would read the story and he was in Genesis and he was taking them through the account of Joseph's life and he said that these, these fierce warriors became so enamored with the soap opera of Joseph's life, this you know, son who became a slave and who then Potiphar's wife was pursuing him. And he, he said, I got to the point where Potiphar's wife tried to get Joseph to sleep with her. And when Joseph fled and left his garment in her hand and, and then she comes back and she accuses uh, Joseph of, of trying to uh, molest her, He said these warriors all jumped up with their spears in their hand and they yelled, that's a lie. And he said, I was scared to death. I thought they were about to kill me. And I wonder if you've ever had that reaction. When is the last time you were reading through the Bible, you just couldn't wait to turn the next page to see what was was happening? Or you read a response of something like that where a man was, was unjustly accused and your response was this visceral, no, that's wrong. When you read the Bible, do you just flip through it or do you really sit and soak it up? Do you, do you say, God, what can you show me today? What can I learn today? There was an old uh, cereal commercial on a couple of years back where they were trying to get people to, to go back and eat the cereal they did as kids. And it would show these adults uh, being given a bowl of, of cornflakes. And they'd look at it and they'd go, what's this? And they'd go, well, just try it. And, and the person would eat the, the cornflakes. And then they would go, hey, this is good. And then there would be a voiceover where the, the commercial said, Kellogg's cornflakes, taste them again for the first time. And they were trying to say, you've forgotten just how good it was. Remember the first time you had it. If the Bible has kind of grown old and stale to you, I invite you to taste it again for the first time. If the word has become so familiar to you in the translation you use, get a different translation. I have eight or nine different translations of the Bible that I read through because I sometimes want to see not only what are you looking at, but I also want to see it with fresh eyes so that as my mind thinks, well, I already know what's coming, it changes uh, some of the way the story reads. There are many things you can do, but the, the main thing we need to do is just understand again what a privilege it is to have the Bible and to be able to read God's word. This is God speaking to us. And as the people here in Nehemiah listen to God's word, we see that they, they not only taste it for the first time, but they, they're attentive and they internalize it and they respond to it. Verse 9 says they're weeping and they're mourning. In a moment, we'll talk more about the conviction they may have felt for their sin. But, but some of this also is spurred by seeing the wall that is rebuilt. Remember, we're at the point in Nehemiah where the walls of the city have been rebuilt in 52 days. 
These are walls that have lay in ruin for over 140 years. And the people are saying, look at this miraculous thing that has happened in our midst. God is at work. There are things going on all around us that, that only God could do. And so they, they recognize the greatness of God. Again, as you sit here this morning at Wayside, I wonder how many of us have lost some of that wonder of what God is doing in our midst. How many come to church and just think, well, I'm checking off, I made church on Sunday. But do you ever stop to think, what is God doing in your midst? Just a couple of things I can highlight for you. Uh, If we just go back a few months to this summer, we've had 180 people go to seven different uh, mission trips here at Wayside Chapel. There are groups that have gone to Guatemala, to East Asia, the Czech Republic, Arizona, Houston, Louisiana, and Peru. These are people who have gone out all around the world, who have given of their time to go into different places to share the good news of the gospel. And we've seen people come to faith. We've seen ministries there strengthened. We've seen buildings built that can continue the work long after these groups have returned home. Over the summer, we had Vacation Bible School. And if you're here when VBS is happening, I know many of you are because this past summer we had 420 of you volunteer to serve over 560 kids. And as fun as that week is, and if you're here on the Sunday where the kids come and lead worship and you go, well, that was great, uh, there were 55 kids who began a personal relationship with Jesus Christ this summer through VBS. 55 lives that were changed for eternity because of the the ministry that many of you did, because of hearing the word of God, the gospel that was being taught. Last Sunday, I I mentioned uh, our Echo Weekend that is coming. This is the in-town retreat where our middle school and high school students uh, spend a weekend being immersed in God's word. They have a great time of fun, but they also are exposed to deep truth and worship and have a wonderful time of discipleship. And I asked you last week to to prayerfully consider being a part of ministering to these students. And our student ministry team told me that they were blown away by your response. They had 113 people volunteer to sign up to serve these 200 or so students that will be a part of the ministry. Last weekend, we had 76 of our college and single students out on a retreat. These are people who stepped away from their books and their careers and their their life here to say we want to spend time in community, getting to know each other better and growing deeper in our walk with God. These are just some of the amazing things that are happening here at Wayside. Next week, you're going to hear about our Gifts of Love Christmas Outreach. This is where uh, we're serving the students who we serve on a regular basis through our Colonial Hills uh, Elementary Outreach. If you're not aware of it, Wayside for the last 10 years has had a partnership with a public elementary school here in our community, just up the road, uh, Colonial Hills Elementary. It's an underserved school that has uh, a lot of lower socioeconomic families as well as immigrant families that are there. And for 10 years, we've been able to go in and serve as tutors to help these students in their academics. We've been able to come alongside and encourage uh, the teachers and the staff there through gifts of appreciation and through resourcing, providing some things that the district can't give them in order to impact the students. And these good works create goodwill that opens up 
the people to the good news of the gospel. And through these things, we have an after-school Bible club there. And in this after-school Bible club, we have seen over 100 of these kids come to faith in Jesus Christ, not here on Wayside's campus, but out there in a public school campus. And the gifts of love thing that we're doing is where we provide gifts to the students to be able to provide Christmas gifts to their uh, adult parents where these kids maybe would not otherwise have the opportunity to do that. It's happening through our Operation Christmas Salute. There's already registration open for this. The women's ministry on Tuesday, December 3rd, is getting together where they are going to sit down and handwrite cards to uh, the airmen who are out at Lackland, these recruits, these soldiers who go through. Every year uh, we provide handwritten cards as well as uh, homemade cookies and brownies and other things that are then used through the outreaches there at the base where, again, hundreds and hundreds of these soldiers come to faith in Christ through the uh, process of partnership that we have where the the good news of the gospel is shared through uh, a breakfast there on the base. Uh, I mentioned this Colonial Hills uh, community that we serve. Another way that we serve here in San Antonio is uh, we have a New Hope Connection, a ministry that we started out in the Wurzbach Manor Apartments that are to serve the immigrant families that are being uh, brought here to San Antonio. These are from Latin American countries. They're from African countries. They're from Middle Eastern countries. People of Muslim background are in this ministry, and we teach English is a second language. We meet physical needs, providing shoes and socks and just friendship. And uh, there's going to be a fall outreach that's led by Matt Gruber on uh, Saturday, November 9th that you can be a part of. These are just some of the many things that are happening here at Wayside. And so, again, as you show up on a Sunday or you come during a midweek, have you lost the wonder of what God is actually doing in our midst and through all of you in the ministries that we have here at Wayside. Now, as I mention these things, I, I know that sometimes uh, people are at a point in their life where they're saying, you know, Roger, right now things are not good for me. I'd like to be involved in these, but I'm struggling. I have struggles in my own life, uh, including things that happen sometimes uh, with our physical health. We have a number of families here in our church that are dealing with terminal illness. And sometimes as I I talk to people who are battling cancer or some other disease or at the end of a life, they say, what can I do? I'm at a point where I, I really don't have any time other than going to the doctors or being in the hospital or being around people. And I'm I want to have an impact as my life is coming to an end. How do I reach out with the good news? How do I make the days left that I have count? And I can tell you that many of these faithful men and women are doing that as they show up to hospitals and and chemo clinics and they're, they're sitting in waiting rooms with other patients, others who are struggling just like them, and they're able to shine the good news of the gospel into the, the darkness of the light where they are. I'll share with you a story from a man by the name of Doug Nichols. He was part of a ministry called Operation Mobilization, and he was serving in India in 1967. And uh, while he was there in India in the 60s, he contracted tuberculosis. And uh, they sent him away to a sanitarium for several months to be uh, treated. And Nichols said, I did not yet speak the language, uh, but I tried to give Christian literature written in their language to the patients the doctors, the nurses, but everyone refused. 
He says, the first few nights I woke up around two in the morning coughing. And one morning during my coughing spell, I noticed one of the older and sicker patients across the aisle trying to get up out of bed. He would sit up on the edge of the bed and he'd try to stand, but he was too weak and he would fall back into his, his cot. He said, I didn't understand what he was trying to do. And he finally fell back and into his bed exhausted and I heard him crying softly. The next morning, I realized what the man had been trying to do. He had been trying to get up and walk to the bathroom because the stench in our ward was awful. Other patients yelled insults at the man. Angry nurses moved and rough, moved him roughly from side to side as they cleaned up the mess he had made. One nurse even slapped him. The old man curled into a ball and he wept. The next night, when I woke up coughing again, I noticed this man across the aisle uh, again trying to sit up and stand. Like the night before, he fell back whimpering. He says, I don't like bad smells. I didn't want to become involved, but I got out of bed and I went over to him. And when I touched him on his shoulder, his eyes opened wide with fear. I smiled and I put my arm under him and I picked him up. He was very light due to his old age and advanced TB. And I carried him to the washroom, which was a filthy small room with a hole in the floor. I stood behind him with my arms under his armpits as he took care of himself. After he finished, I picked him up and I carried him back to his bed. And as I laid him down, he kissed me on the cheek. He smiled and said something I couldn't understand. The next morning, another patient woke me up and he handed me a steaming cup of tea. And he motioned with his hand that he wanted one of the tracks I had tried to give him previously. As the sun rose, other patients approached and they indicated they also wanted the booklets I had tried to distribute before. Throughout the day, nurses, interns, doctors, and also other patients asked for my gospel tracks. Weeks later, an Indian, an Indian evangelist who spoke the language visited. And as he talked to others, he discovered that several had accepted Christ as their Savior as a result of reading the literature. And he told me of what had happened. This guy, Nichols, says, what did it take to reach these people with the gospel? It wasn't my ability to speak their language. It wasn't a, pervasive, a persuasive talk. I simply took a trip to the bathroom. You know, sometimes God has us flat on our backs. And he gets us there so we'll look up and see him. But other times he gets us flat on our backs so that others around us can see him. Because our lives may be the only Bible that some people ever read. We can speak things with our lips, but ask yourself if your life is speaking the gospel as well. Now we need to clearly communicate the word of God. The Bible is clear that how can they come to understand the gospel without a preacher, without the words of life being spoken. But ask yourself, if God has got you in a season or a place right now where you can speak the gospel with your life as well as your lips. As the people in our passage are there, they're hearing the word of God being read to them. Verses 7 through 8 tell us the Levites explained the law to the people while they remained in their place. And they read from the book from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. When it says they translated it, this word means to make something distinct, to separate it from something else so as to make it clear. What it's talking about is how many of these 
Jews in that day who had been in captivity for years had lost the ability to understand the Hebrew law. And so they not only needed it translated into a language they could understand, but they also needed it explained in a way that it made sense to them. Verse 7 tells us they're explaining the passage to the people. This is what's called expository preaching. It's what we do here at Wayside. You notice we read the passage and we talk about the meaning. But the reason we do this is not just to fill your heads with Bible knowledge. If you walk out of here as big-headed believers, knowing a lot of the Bible, memorizing the Bible, able to quote chapter and verse, but it never moves the 18 inches from your head to your heart, where it then translates into action in your lives, then, then we haven't accomplished what God wants. God doesn't want us to be those who sit, soak, and sour. He wants us to be believers who move out of our seats and we impact others with the, the truth as our own lives have been impacted. We see in verse 9 how the people are impacted by what they're, learn, what they're learning. Because it says, Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe and Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. What Romans 3.20 tells us is, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And as the people are hearing the word of God read to them, as they're hearing about the ways they've transgressed the law, the things they've neglected to do, the sacrifices they failed to offer, the ways they haven't walked with God, there's mourning. There's conviction of sin. They're weeping in repentance. And seeing this, Ezra says to them in verses 10 through 12, go. Eat of the fat, drink of the sweets, and portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Now, this isn't saying that the people just said, ignore the conviction. Don't, don't worry about your past sin. What it's telling us is they, they wept, they mourned, they repented. And the word repent literally means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. It means to recognize you've been going in the wrong direction as you've been walking away from God. And when you're convicted of sin and when you repent, you have an understanding you need to stop. You need to turn around. You need to go back to God. If you've never come to God in the first place, it means you understand your need to go to the cross and receive Jesus as your Savior. So it's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. And as the people repent, as they see the sacrifices they've neglected, they begin to offer them. And as they make these sin and guilt offerings, what happens is some offerings, the Bible tells us, are consumed completely on the brazen altar. They're consumed by fire. But there were other offerings where the people would receive back a portion of what they had given. So the libation offerings, there's drink coming back. The, burn off, the, the, the meat and the meal offerings, there's cakes and there's meat being given back to them. And this is what Ezra is telling them, take your portions Go and celebrate. Share what you have with others. Have a time of feasting because you've come back to the Lord. You've restored your relationship. Things have been made right. You see, God doesn't want his people groveling in guilt over their past mistakes. 
just as God doesn't want this for us today. The Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. The Bible tells us he takes our sins and he removes them as far as the east is from the west. And so if you're a person who's, who's fallen into sin in the past and you've turned to God, Satan, who's called the father of lies, he wants to remind us of our sin. You know, he calls us by our sins. You're a liar, you're a thief, you're an adulterer. But God, who knows our sins, calls us by name. He tells us in John 1.12, But as many as received him, my son, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And he says, You are not seen by me as a sinner. You are seen by me as my son, my daughter, a saved and redeemed person. And so this is the way that God wants us to see ourselves. I began today by asking if your walk with God was more of a duty than a delight. And following God is not about rules. It's not about empty rituals, showing up at church and doing things. It's about a relationship, a personal relationship, where you know the Lord, where you've come to faith in his son, where you've accepted Jesus, and you see that you are accepted as a son or a daughter through the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And if you think, well, I've made such a mess of my life, God couldn't want me, he would never accept me as a son or a daughter of his, you're wrong. Read Romans 5, 8, where he says he demonstrated his own love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were at our worst, while we were far from him, when we were in rebellion, is when God pursued us, and purchased us through the blood of his son, dying to save us. As we come to a close today, some of you may need to come to Jesus. You may need to come to him for the very first time, recognizing that you've never repented of your sins. You've never seen Jesus for who he was, the promised Messiah who went to the cross to die, to pay the penalty of death that you and I owe for our sins. And if you've never come to faith in him, I invite you today to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus, to say, God, I'm a sinner. And I recognize that you died. You paid that penalty of death for me. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And so if you've never come to faith in Christ, I invite you today to turn to him to accept his death as the payment in your place and to become a child of God. Others of us have come to him in the past, but we've turned our back. We've been walking away from God. We've been living in sin. We've not lived as we should. And again, we need to repent. We need to stop. We need to turn around. We need to come back to fellowship with God, to acknowledge our sin, confess it, you didn't lose your salvation, but you've broken fellowship. And God invites you to come back to be restored in a relationship with him. I want you to take a moment now to consider how you need to respond today. Whether it's a time of repentance, where by faith you come to Christ for the first time. Maybe as a prodigal son or daughter, one who's been living wayward and away from God, that today you need to turn and come to him. 
Others of us may be in fellowship with him, but we've, we've grown weary in our walk with God. We haven't been spending time in his word. We haven't seen the privilege it is to, to get to open the word of God and spend time there. So maybe you need to be renewed in that as well. Take a moment now just to think about where you are this morning to talk to God, and then I'll close our time here in prayer in just a moment. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I know that there are some right now that may feel far from you. Satan has led them to believe the lie that because of past mistakes that you're done with them or that they're not good enough to be loved by you. I pray, God, that they would come to understand the full truth of your word. That, yes, you see us in our fallen state. Yes, you see our sin. You didn't ignore it, but you dealt with it. You, Jesus, went to the cross to die to pay that penalty of death we owed to provide the way home. And so I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here today who does not yet know your son, Jesus Christ, as their Savior, that today would be the day where they accept your great gift of new and eternal life. They would accept accept the payment that you made on the cross and that they would come to receive you as their Savior and be made a part of the family of God. And Father, for the rest of us who have already made that commitment, who have already come to faith in Christ, may you remind us again, Lord, of the the truth of Romans 8.1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As you tell us at the end of Romans chapter 8, there is nothing that is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, Father, would you renew our fellowship with you? Would you remind us again of how you will never leave us or forsake us? We thank you, Father, for the promise and the presence that you've given us, Holy Spirit, in our lives to help us walk with you. Would you help us, Lord, to leave here today in joy, knowing you and following you, We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his precious name that we pray and thank you. Amen.